0: Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. A weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for point 0.1 ASHA CEUs, We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word KEYS. Visit SpeechTherapyPD.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs, Keys to a Holistic Approach to Dysphagia Management. I am your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. This is a live podcast, and we encourage questions from our participants. You can put your questions in the chat box for our guests to answer throughout the episode. You will also have an opportunity to ask questions at the end of the episode. As a reminder, for this live episode to get live CEUs, you must log into your speechtherapypd.com account and complete the entire course content by the end of the day today. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs and receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. Dr. Samantha Shoon receives an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode. Research discussed in this presentation was funded by a grant from the American Speech Language Hearing Association. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. And now here's a little bit about our guest today. Dr. Samantha Schoon, Ph.D., CCC, SLP, is an associate professor and the director of the Communication Disorders and Sciences Program at the University of Oregon. Her research and clinical interests include the effects of healthy and pathological aging on swallowing and the mealtime process. She is particularly interested in better understanding the shared mealtime and food-related activities As opportunities to therapeutically target improved quality of life for older adults and their families. Prior to returning to school for her PhD and throughout her doctoral program, she worked as an ASHA certified speech language pathologist in various medical settings with a particular focus on dysphagia and stroke rehabilitation. In addition to her research, she currently teaches in the area of medical speech language pathology and organizes a swallowing disorder support group. Welcome, Dr. Shun. We are so happy to have you here today to talk about a holistic approach to dysphagia management. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the warm welcome. <laughs> well, we are so excited to have you here. And we would love for you to share with us a little bit about your journey as an SLP and how you came to specialize in a holistic approach to dysphagia management.
1: Yeah. So I actually like to tell folks I had no interest in the medical setting when I first started uh, my journey to speech pathology, um, in large part because I didn't know what it was. And so I was a linguistics and psychology major in undergrad, really thought I was interested in child speech perception and child speech production. And then when I got into graduate school, I realized, you know, I love Children, but I'm not sure that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so I started getting really fascinated by the acquired disorders and gradually found my way more into the uh, adult side of things, um, especially after graduation when I started working in stroke rehabilitation. And I think my journey to kind of this more holistic approach to really anything that we do as a speech pathologist. Sort of evolved um, naturally over time as I tried to apply the things that I learned from school where, you know, a lot of it, especially within dysphagia and especially within dysphagia being a more recent field um, was very physiology focused. And I just felt like I was always missing something that, you know, I would sit working with an individual at a nursing home and I would think about their swallow function, but then I'd look around at everything else that was happening in that environment. So for example, if they're eating in a dining room, a communal dining room, and seeing that well, there's sights and sounds and smells and other people interacting with them, and if they're being fed by someone else, how does that impact the system? And that's really what started um, my journey to get my PhD, actually, is I was really interested in some of those other components and how they interact with the swallowing. And so I even think I had a bit of a, a narrow focus on what holistic approach to dysphagia management meant at first, where I was looking at, you know, just even arm movement, how does our movement impact swallow function? And then it's really just kind of snowballed from there as I've transitioned, I finished my PhD, and now I do research as part of my faculty position and just seeing and understanding and talking to individuals and realizing all these other aspects of eating that we just can't ignore when we talk about
0: swallowing. So was your thesis actually on a holistic approach, or was that research that came after your PhD? Yeah, so um, my dissertation work looked at it in more of a narrow
1: view, but really looked at that feeding process. So as individuals eat um, versus, say, if they're fed by someone else, does that impact how they swallow? Does it impact how they move their mouth? And so I kind of started it back then in
0: that narrow scope and then have gone from there. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you. Okay. And why is a holistic approach to dysphagia management so important? Yeah. And so whenever I introduce the
1: topic of dysphagia, you know, really, whether it's to experienced SLPs or to folks who've never really stopped to think about swallowing before, because I do often um, talk to individuals just within the community community within my university setting here i always start with a kind of why should we care type slide and in fact in formal presentations i do this little bit where i pull up images from a google search that uses keywords like meals and meal times and eating and all of the pictures that come up when you do that search show groups of people sitting around a table together, smiling, engaged in the eating process, or, or we see these beautiful spreads of food, full of color, full of texture. And then what I do is I pull up images um, based on the keyword dysphagia. And all of those images that get pulled up are basically schematics of head and neck or x-ray images. And so gone is that emotion, the socialization, the vibrancy of meal times. And in fact, even the person as a whole becomes missing. And we just have this kind of head and neck schematic. And so, you know, truth be told, I often think that we have a fundamental issue in dysphagia management in that we lose sight of the reason we eat. We know that shared meals reinforce our physical, psychological, our emotional connections. We connect food to ritual we connect food to beliefs. We connect food to socialization and engagement and relationship with others. And I think that unfortunately, when we introduce dysphagia into the mix, all of that seems to disappear. And we focus only on moving the substance from the mouth to the stomach in a safe and efficient manner. And so we really lose sight of who that person is, you know, what they're eating or want to be eating, who they're eating with and ultimately what impact those eating changes um, will have on the other people involved in the process. I think too, we know that dysphagia isn't only a physiologic and biologic based disorder. And so what I mean there is that, you know, we know that there's impaired physiology, that's a big focus of dysphagia management. And we know that that impaired physiology does lead to biological consequences. So um, individuals with Dysphasia are more at risk for experiencing malnutrition. And we also have this ever growing body of research that demonstrates that dysphasia really does have severe psychosocial consequences as well. So we know that individuals with dysphasia experience decreased social participation. um, They have increased anxiety, social isolation, depression, and they experience decreased quality of life overall. And so again, that makes sense when we think about what the role that mealtimes play in everyday life. It isn't just about getting our physiological needs met or our biological needs such as water and food for nutrition and hydration purposes, but it's also about that sense of belonging, that sense of intimacy, that sense of engagement, friendship, family connection and so, when we remove someone from that typical mealtime situation because of dysphagia, we're disrupting that entire biopsychosocial process.
0: Yeah, you're also talking about someone like, for example, someone who would have suffered a stroke. They already have, you know, so many other uh, challenges, and especially with communication. So, having the shared experience of a meal you know, even if their communication verbally is limited, there's a lot of communication that occurs at mealtime.
1: 100%. And I think that's a big piece of it is we forget about all those other activities that are taking place during the mealtime. And so it's not just saying, oh, you know, well, you can't eat right now, you have to be tube fed, but that's okay, because you're still going to get nutrition." But it also means that they're less likely to sit at that dining table because they can't have that food that everyone else is having, which means they're missing out on all that chit chat. How was your day? How are you doing? You know, all those other pieces um, that come into play there. You know, I also think something else when we think about holistic management and and something that we forget is that there's not always this one-to-one relationship between kind of the physiology that we see those objective measures as a clinician and what a client or patient is actually feeling. And so we might find that, you know, maybe we do a repeat swallow study and their swallow has improved, but they don't feel that their swallow has improved. You know, they might still be fearful to eat meals. They might still be hesitant to come to the dining table and engage with the rest of their family. And I think that's another piece um, that we have to remember is that it's not just about their physiology improving. It has to be about their overall being, their overall being as a person improving and feeling better. And I think I draw um, from, and maybe it's just my colleagues who I have here who I work with, but I draw from the eating disorders literature, for example. and, And we think about the process of recovery from an eating disorder, where it's not just suddenly you know, you fix that eating disorder and they feel better. I mean, they have this fundamental change in their relationship with food. And I think the same way about individuals with dysphagia, they have this fundamental change in their relationship with food and their relationship with meal times, And so I would argue that we have to address that because if we don't address that, then we can't necessarily expect them to suddenly feel better.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you say address that, um, you're talking about directly addressing that, having that conversation with the client about the psychosocial aspects of dysphagia? 100%. I'm saying we have to
1: ask how they feel about their dysphagia. We have to ask how they feel about mealtimes, how they think that process is going. I think fear is an emotion that comes to mind um, most readily for me that some of these individuals, you know, especially in in talking to folks in a support group setting that They feel fearful that they're going to cough and choke. And I think it's well within our scope and very appropriate that we need to ask them those questions. If they feel fearful, is there something we can do about it? Can we use maybe those swallow studies where we have the physiology and maybe they're not actually coughing or maybe they're not actually choking, for example, and we can show them Well, actually, look, your airway is wide open. You're actually not choking. And can that help address some of that fear? Or, you know, the other thing, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about family involvement as well, but I think this applies for the individual uh, with dysphagia, is thinking about whether they need counseling and working with other mental health or working with mental health providers as part of our team. You know, certainly they are going to be experiencing emotions and responses to what's going on. And like you said, it could be the dysphagia, but it also could be they've had a stroke and so much else is happening. And they need to process that. They need a space to talk through those feelings and really discover how that's impacting them, how that's impacting their life, and what are some strategies they can do about it. So I do think there's pieces the SLP can do, certainly within our sessions and within our scope. And then I also think there's opportunities for us to be referring and referring more Um, and working collaboratively on a team with mental health
0: providers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, can you talk a little bit more about how dysphagia impacts the whole family system? Yeah,
1: definitely. And I'll say, you know, when I first started giving talks on dysphagia, my message about expanding really our scope of practice in what we consider in dysphagia management um, did stop at the person themselves. So kind of like I, I talked about before and all these other factors we have to consider within the person. And then I really started to realize that the disruptions in the engagement and the socialization and the intimacy Like that's not a a one person activity. You know, there's certainly the other side, there's the family, there's the other side of that intimacy, that other side of the engagement, who are also going to be impacted by that loss and by the loss of that shared interaction and shared meal time.
0: Even like a little bit of guilt, you know, if you're enjoying an amazing burger or, or steak or you want to. Um, You don't want to do that in front of that person. So sometimes the whole family's diet needs to be altered. You know, it's similar to someone with a, when a new food allergy is introduced to a family, there's a, there's a whole shift that needs to occur. Yeah, 100%. And I think what we find is families
1: respond to that differently, right? So some families just change everything. I mean, even as you, you know, had that allergy example too, some families say, this is our new life. We are just going to adapt. You know, you have to be gluten free. We're all going to be gluten free. And other people say, gosh, well, this is something that this food is really important to me. This is something that I need. This is my special food. And I don't know how to give that up. And so I think you're right that there's this guilt or they will hide you know, there's stories in the literature about people who will hide to consume something just so they don't have to eat it in front of their loved one who can't. I think that definitely gets magnified um, when someone is on a feeding tube that they can't have any food. And so that, oh gosh, I'm I'm enjoying this great meal that you can't enjoy. And then it gets magnified by the caregiver or loved one or family member having to make a different meal for that person or prepare their tube feeding. And so there's really this emotional aspect of it, this guilt, this loss of intimacy, this loss of connection. And then there's this logistic barrier of, gosh, I have a lot more that I have to do. I have to thicken liquids. I have to chop food up small. I have to make it moist and put extra um, gravy on it. Or have to, you know, figure out all this tube feeding and all these tubes and wires and, and all these new things that I didn't have before. And I think, you know, the hard or a hard, it's all, a lot of it is hard, but a hard piece of it is that not all the time these family members chose this role. I think there's an underlying assumption. That you know, a spouse or an adult child or a parent, if we're talking about a a pediatric client, but that's slightly a, a different situation. But especially with adults with dysphagia or adults with any disability that's newly acquired, is that their family members are willing caregivers. And I don't say that like in a negative way, that you know, they don't want to support their loved one, but it's also not the future that they envisioned. And so I think there's that aspect of it too, this realization that the future that I envisioned is different. And I have this different role now. And here's these responsibilities that I have to do as a result. And I think, you know, I remember there was a a schematic during Better Speech and Hearing Month from ASHA a while back that said, here's how you can support your loved one with dysphagia. And it had, I mean, great things on it to show how multifaceted it is. But it was like, You can be their advocate and you can record what they eat and record their exercises and you can make sure they do their exercises and you can be their chef and you can be this and that and this and that. And it's like, whoa, that's just for dysphagia alone. I mean, now imagine they have, they're seeing physical therapy and they're seeing occupational therapy and speech is also working with them on speech and language and cognition. And, you know, maybe they have nursing needs and suddenly that list starts to grow and grow. And so, you know, we really see these chronic conditions, having a pretty severe impact on individuals with dysphagia, but also individuals with uh, acquired or, you know, disability
0: in general. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And sometimes that caregiver is, is willing and volunteers, let's say there's, you know, a few different siblings, and, and so one volunteers to take on that main role. And then with all of the varied responsibilities with everything that you just mentioned, with physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech, and then dysphagia, and then logistically cutting up the meal, like it it can get to be a lot for people. And then on top of that, sometimes the patient themselves doesn't want to eat that diet. So So it's complicated. It's really
1: complicated. And you know what I found fascinating. So I collaborate with one of my colleagues, Dr. Ashwini Namasavaya McDonald at McMaster University, and we've done a lot of work starting to look at how does dysphagia play a role in caregiver burden and increasing caregiver burden. And I think for all the reasons that you just said, it was almost no surprise to us that when we looked at just general caregiver burden, so not even specific to dysphagia, just caregivers of older adults and saying, as a result of your caregiving, do you feel emotionally burdened? Do you feel financially burdened? Do you feel physically burdened? So just general burden. Um, We found that dysphagia was actually an independent predictor of physical and emotional burden. So just having dysphagia, even when controlling for other things, like we know age plays a role, we know gender plays a role, we know health status plays a role, but it also looks like dysphagia plays a role as well. Because perhaps of all these complications, which is something that we're looking at um, further as we go.
0: Well, very interesting. Well, we will be looking forward to that research. Uh, All right. So now we've established that it is a family affair with dysphagia management when you're taking a holistic approach. So how can you integrate families into dysphagia management beyond just the logistics? First, I'll say
1: stay tuned. We have a collaborative paper uh, coming out that was written by myself and Dr. Namasavai McDonald, along with a uh, licensed marriage and family therapist Um, that's going to be coming out in ASHA Perspectives soon. And so, But I want to talk about it now too. (laughs) Stay tuned for that and let's talk today as well. And so I do think there's a number of things that clinicians can start implementing into their clinical practice. And I think First and foremost is opening the door for conversation. We have to feel comfortable just asking a caregiver, you know, how are you doing? And not that automatic that we ask each other all the time, how are you doing? Fine. Oh, how are you doing? Fine. And I think we've gotten really good at pretending everything is fine. But I think saying, no, really, how are you doing? And showing that we're interested in hearing how things are going. I think acknowledging that it's hard can be really helpful to kind of open the door to that conversation. So, you know, taking on new responsibilities can be really challenging, or I know a lot of other caregivers have said that X, Y, and Z can be really challenging or can be a struggle. Do you have any support? How have you been doing with that? And I think. Just opening this door for communication, you know, letting them know it's okay to be vulnerable, normalizing those potential feelings of stress or resentment or anger or fear or guilt. You know, again, normalizing it that it's okay to feel that way. We might actually expect you to feel that way. I think that can be a really powerful um, first step. And I also think it's something that other healthcare providers aren't doing. I think in our role as Communication specialists, we often develop relationships with families, with patients, um, perhaps to a different degree than other disciplines do. And I think we often have the time to do that. And so sometimes I wonder if they've ever been asked that question. And so I think that can be a really useful first step. I think then as, you know, perhaps adjacent to that or subsequent to that, um, using some sort of screening tool. So we recently developed the CARES, which I believe we put in the handout for all of you um, who are attending to take a look at as well. But CARES stands for the Caregiver Analysis of Reported Experiences with Swallowing Disorders. Quite a mouthful why we used the acronym CARES. And what this screening tool allows is for a preliminary um, series of questions focused on caregiver burden. And so it's a a 26-item questionnaire, pretty quick for caregivers to go through. It has two parts to it. So the first part just looks at behavioral and functional changes, and then the second part looks at subjective caregiver stress. And I think what the CARES is useful for is that as clinicians, we can go through and look at their responses to some of those questions to identify what seems to be most challenging or what seems to be introducing the most stress into the family system. And so for example, if they say, I'm not really sure what to do with the management, like I'm finding a lot of burden related to managing the dysphagia. So increased time needed to puree food or prepare food, excuse me, puree could be one of those, you know, I'm having trouble finding appropriate foods, finding thickened liquids, I am concerned over the chronicity, I'm concerned over how long this dysphagia is going to last. Those are things that we can address in the session, both with the patient and the caregiver engaged in conversations about, well, let's talk about how you might thicken liquids. Let's talk about what the trajectory of dysphagia recovery has looked like until this point and and what it might be like in the future based on the patient's diagnosis. I think there's other items on the CARES that then can point to a need for referral. And so just like we mentioned earlier, referring patient for mental health, you know, to a mental health provider, I think also referring caregivers. And so if caregivers are reporting, feeling depressed, anxious, you know, I'm finding I don't have a lot of time for myself, I've had to really cut back on things that are important to me in my life. Those are kind of signals that maybe we need to be referring them and we can help set that up and help them uh, get into that system and start working with mental health providers. I think I am going to, I see a question in the chat box. So I'm going to take that too, because I think it's relevant here. You know, Do you ask these questions in front of the patient or privately? I think sometimes you have to feel it out. I think, well, my answer is twofold here. One, we all know the practicalities of insurance and billing and You know, can I engage in a lengthy conversation with just the caregiver? And then what does that mean for my time? And I hate that so much of care has to be driven by these insurance constraints, but I also recognize that that's a a reality of our healthcare system right now. And so I think if you get the feel that people are okay with that, I do think engaging in that some of that conversation in front of the patient. I also think it's really useful because I'm not always sure that the patients and their caregivers have communicated about some of these things. And so, you know, if the caregiver is really nervous about the patient choking, does the patient recognize that? Like, do they know that their caregiver feels a lot of fear when they are eating something alone or drinking water in their room? And so I, I do think that that can be some useful conversation. I think it's also good to try and get a little bit of a space where you can just pull them aside even for a minute and start with some of those opening questions like, how are you doing? And then if it seems like they're not doing well, um, you know, can you pull someone else into the conversation? You know, either set the patient up with an activity for a few minutes, so you can check in on them. Or, you know, when I worked in stroke rehabilitation, we always had a, a social worker, at least who was present and so could you pull the social worker in there at that point in time um, to talk to the caregiver? But I mean, I like being open, but I also recognize that not all family dynamics really are in that point where people can be open with each other.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, when you have conversations like this that are more holistically focused versus a therapeutic technique. And you're going to be billing for that time. And do you explain to the patient that this is part of our holistic approach so that the patient that you don't leave and the patient and the caregiver don't say something like, well, we just talked, we didn't
1: work. Yeah, I think it's important to lay out right from the beginning that just like we're doing here, just like we're talking about, here's all the different ways dysphagia can impact you. Here's all the different ways that dysphagia can impact your family. And so recognizing that it's part of the process, you know, I also don't want to lead people to believe like we're not counselors. You know, we get training in counseling in grad school and through our professional practice, but we're also not counselors. And so I, I do think sometimes it is a fine line and we have to be careful that our sessions aren't counseling sessions. I think it's still couched within the, we're focused on managing your dysphagia. We're focused on, you know, figuring out what is functional for you. And maybe that's another way to do it is using some motivational interviewing techniques where we're really trying to get at, you know, what is your goal as a family? Because then again, you'll have that buy-in. if They see, oh, you know, we're talking about this because our goal of a family is to be able to go out to, you know, our favorite restaurant. Like, this is the restaurant we always went to for anniversary. We want to be able to go out there for our anniversary next year. Okay, well, that's the goal we're working on. So here's all the different pieces that are involved in that. I think if we can bring it back to what is functional for them, you know, use some of those motivational interviewing techniques, then I do think they're often on board with like, okay, this is part of the process. This is how we get there. Because then you can identify, wow, it looks like fear is a barrier to going to that restaurant. Or embarrassment. I mean, I think that's another emotion that people feel like coughing and choking. That can be embarrassing. Drooling can be embarrassing. And so working through some of that, again, is working towards their functional goal that they identified.
0: Right, right. And of course, coughing during the times that we're in right now, even if it's not dysphagia related, can be embarrassing. It looks like we have another question. want me to read it, or do you want to read it? Yeah,
1: I can address that. Yeah. So the question is, and thank you, Kristen, for bringing this up. That we don't have mental health professionals at my rehab. How can I address these issues with the caregivers when I can't, you know, bring in someone else? There's no on-site professional uh, to work through this with. And I think, you know, one question, the first question I would have is whether we're talking about inpatient rehab or outpatient rehab, and in part, because I fully recognize, I, I think a lot of what I talk about is more that kind of chronic, long-term outpatient type setting. And so, yeah. And so I think in patient rehab, you know, they're still there for a good amount of time. And we're still working on caregiver training. And we're still working on preparing caregivers for when that individual is going to be discharged home. I think at that point, it's almost a bit more preventative. So those caregivers at that point really haven't had the experience of necessarily living with someone with dysphagia that day to day preparing the food, preparing the meals, um, you know, keeping one ear open as they're eating in the other room. And so I think having conversations about what might happen, what might be the case as they transition home, or here are some challenges that other people have experienced, kind of like setting that stage. And then again, that idea of, of normalizing it. So setting the stage for you might feel this way, and that's okay. That other caregivers have reported feeling this way. If you do feel this way, you know, you should be talking to your outpatient speech pathologist or home health, whoever you're seeing, talking to your physician. Um, you know, you can start bringing up that idea again, normalizing that idea about it's hard to be a caregiver and therapy is okay. It's okay to have someone else to talk to or asking, okay, it seems like you're going to be the primary caregiver. Do you have any other support? Who else might be providing caregiving? Who else might be supporting you through this process? And so, you know, I do think that. These caregivers, especially as they go through inpatient rehab, they're going to have a lot going on because they're dealing with something new that has happened, some new medical condition. You know, again, starting that realization that things might change. I just think their needs are going to be slightly different. You know, I wonder if it's possible to get information. And I know inpatient rehab facilities often bring in folks from different areas within the region. So it may not be possible, but if you, Know of some specific mental health providers in the area that you can kind of have as like a referral list, like oh, you know you just start hearing some things and you might just say, "Oh, you know it sounds like you'd really benefit from talking to someone else, especially as you're starting to prepare um this discharge to home. Here's a few recommendations, or here's a few people I know in the area, but of course that might only work if they're a little more regionally located, but I think you know whatever." you can have ready to go if it's a, a sheet of phone numbers, they can call or, or just starting that conversation to normalize. I think that can really help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And if you don't have a mental health professional, you also most inpatient rehab places do have a social worker. So you could instead of, you know, if a psychologist is not there, a social worker might be able to provide some referrals. Yeah, it as well.
1: And I think because we often think about, especially the social worker or actually all mental health providers, we often think about just the patient needs. And so we recognize that they're there to talk to the patients, but we don't always recognize like, hey, can you just 15 minutes,
0: 10 minutes, can you just go talk with this family member? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even just having that conversation while they are an inpatient, even if you don't have a specific person to refer them to, because two weeks down the line when they're home by themselves, they might remember that conversation and feel that if this is normal and it would be helpful to get that support. Yeah. And I think, you know, we as SLPs,
1: we probably need to do a better job communicating across transitions. And I know that's hard. I mean, and that that's a conversation we have like at our, our state association level conference, I think every year, all the medical SLPs get together and the hospital SLPs talk to the SNF SLPs and say, you know, how can we facilitate these transitions more? But I think that's another opportunity, like could somewhere in the discharge paperwork, you know, the SLP just put a little note that says, this person's caregiver seems a little vulnerable and may need to be checked in with as well, or they seemed a little unsure about dysphagia management, that might be something
0: that needs to be checked on. Very good suggestion. And thank you very much for the questions. All right, so let's talk a little bit about that research and what were your findings?
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh. We have had so many really cool projects going on recently um, that have just been so exciting. And so I think one of the most relevant recent ones that's particularly relevant to the conversation here uh, specifically looked at contributors to dysphagia-specific caregiver burden, Um, within spousal caregivers of stroke patients. That seems like a a mouthful for five o'clock on a Monday. So individuals who were uh, post-stroke, who were experiencing post-stroke dysphagia, who were um, back home living with their spouses and their spouses were providing some degree of care. And so all of these individuals were experiencing dysphagia in some capacity. So we had a range of individuals in this study from you know, very mild, almost no diet modifications, all the way to severe chronic dysphagia. And um this was a survey study, where we had both the individuals with dysphagia, as well as their caregivers, um answer a number of questions about how dysphagia was impacting their lives, how the relationships had kind of changed since they had the stroke and since they had the dysphagia and so on. And What we were really interested in looking at is um, which of those factors seem to predict increased caregiver burden. So could we find perhaps those risk factors that would allow us as SLPs to say, okay, these caregivers might be more vulnerable and we need to keep a closer eye on them? And oh, yeah, sorry. Did you have?
0: Can you see that I have a question for my eyes? (laughs) I was just thinking that as far as caregiver burden, did you have the question on it? Who was the the main uh, cook in the house prior to this? Because I think that the caregiver burden would definitely be affected by whether that caregiver was a cook to begin with. 100%. And I think that is something I've been
1: like, as an aside, I haven't gotten to this project, but I've always been really interested in some of the kind of, what are considered gendered roles within the household and how that changes after this? So, right. Ex- for example, like if the wife has always been the primary cook and now uh, two things could happen. One, either she's the one who had the stroke and so she can't cook anymore. And so now the husband has taken on that role where he used to think like, that's my wife's responsibility, how that changes the dynamics or where she's always been kind of the like, this is what defines me as taking care of the family. And now my significant other has had a stroke and I can't take care of my family in the same way. So that has always been on my mind. Unfortunately, in this particular sample, we didn't have enough spread in terms of that response. So we asked them if any of the responsibilities changed since the stroke and we didn't get enough difference across the group for that to come out as playing a role. But I agree with you. I definitely think that there's something there. Um, and something that, that we can ask, you know, who typically prepared meals in your household? Has that changed? That is something that we can talk through with them.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, well, often, um, if one person has the role of cooking, often the other person has the role of cleaning up. So all of a sudden, the caregiver is cooking and cleaning up and managing the dysphagia and the rest of the family. But I digress. Let's go back to your study. <laughs> we, we so
1: so um, this study and what we did have data and what we did find was we looked at a host of variables. So some things that we were interested in that we hypothesized could play a role is certainly how the caregiver and the patient kind of appraise their situation. So how severe of an impact is dysphagia having on daily life? Also, too, we were interested in seeing how much those two parties agree. And so could there be a difference in like if the caregiver says it's having a major impact and the patient saying it's not having an impact at all, could that lead to increased burden? Because personally, I think it would lead to a lot of increased burden um, or at least some stress, extra stress in the household. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we did find some of the risk factors or predictors of increased caregiver burden were when the stroke survivor and when the spouse did perceive dysphagia to have a greater impact on kind of daily logistics. So the length of time to eat a meal, mealtime you know, responsibilities, how can we find things to eat, those sorts of things. When those were rated as more challenging because of the dysphagia, there was increased burden. We also found that, perhaps not surprisingly, survivors who had increased diet restrictiveness, their caregivers reported increased burden, and survivors who reported decreased swallow-specific quality of life, their caregivers reported increased burden. You know, what we found really interesting was that stroke severity did not predict this dysphagia-specific increased burden. So it wasn't just the fact that someone who had a more severe stroke had more, their caregiver had more burden as related to dysphagia, but more so how the dysphagia specifically was, or how their swallowing, excuse me, specifically was impacted. And I think, you know, what we really draw from this is that there's a lot of variables that play into burden. So it's, What is actually happening, diet restrictiveness, how that's impacting their daily life. It's also how folks are perceiving the situation. And I think that gets back to what I said before, that it's not just about what we see on video fluoroscopy. It's how do they feel about their situation that is going to determine their burden and how they're doing. You know, the other thing I think is that it was variables from both the survivor and the spouse. So it wasn't just, you know, how the caregiver perceived the situation or how the survivor perceived the situation, but but factors of both of them. And I find every time I talk about dysphagia, I I aspirate, I choke. It's like, what happens,
0: right? (laughs) Believe me, we had chronic cough last week, and we both started coughing. But so what were the, uh, did you have a measurement of the consistency between the burden perceived by the caregiver and the burden perceived by the patient yes we
1: did um and and actually so we kind of found an even split that there were some who agreed and then there were some who the caregiver Thought things were worse off and there were some who the survivor thought things were worse off. Yeah. And I will say our sample size for this one, we only had 28 dyads, which, you know, was, was great in light of everything and was good for what we wanted for this study. But I would love to do it with a larger sample because I think that we, if we could split those groups out, I think we might see some little nuance differences there. And I also wonder what are the other characteristics of those two groups? So, you know, the ones where the caregiver is seeing that thing or is perceiving things to be worse off. Is that the actual situation? Or, you know, perhaps they're more anxious to begin with. Perhaps they have lower self-efficacy and so they're struggling a bit more. I mean, I think there's other things at play there that from a research standpoint, we just need a larger sample size to tease out. I think from a clinical standpoint, though, again, it's, it's open communication. It's that, how do you feel about being a caregiver? Do you feel like this is something you can do? Because then that's just more information that we can bring into, you know, our consideration as we're
0: creating our management plans. hmm. And this specific study was with a partner, a spouse, not a child who was a caregiver. Um Correct. Yeah. Or yeah. did this compel you to want to do a similar study with a different dynamic? Yeah, Yeah. 100%. And I think,
1: you know, part of it, and we're not sure which way it would go. We spousal caregivers, especially when we talk about older adults, they have their own health needs. We know that there are other factors at play that can be influencing how capable they are of being a caregiver, how they respond to being a caregiver, especially when we talk about advanced age. I think adult children caregivers especially now, especially as we see this rapidly aging of our population, um, people trying to keep their loved ones in homes and not in nursing homes. We have a lot of these kind of sandwich generation caregivers. And so, you know, they're taking care of their parents, which has a whole dynamic of like, okay, they used to take care of me. Now I'm taking care of them. We got to navigate that. And they're also taking care of their children. And a lot of times they're working as well. And so I completely um, agree that that's another population that we need to look at, um, because I don't know that things will be exactly the same for them.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, very interesting. And then this particular study was the one that was funded by the American Speech Language Hearing Association. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I got a grant from Asha really to look at kind of this the relationship aspect of dysphagia and how dysphagia can impact more the family system and how dysphagia can impact relationships between um, family members as they kind of navigate this chronic condition. And
0: was this done with your colleague, who you mentioned earlier? Yeah, so she was a part
1: of this study. This study was brewing in my head for years and years, something I wanted to do. And so I had actually um, started it Around the same time or before, um, I got linked up, uh, with her to start doing work. And then one of our actually undergraduate honor students here in our communication disorders and sciences program, um, they took on a lead role in doing some of this work as part of their honors thesis and actually, um, excitingly got to then be the lead author on the publication oh, as well. So that's yeah. great. Oh, that's always great. great. Yep.
0: Well, good for you for, uh, you know, making that happen or helping to make that happen. So that's great. All right. So let's talk here. So we have a little more time uh, or more than a little more time. But okay, can you tell us about a case study where a more of a traditional medical model was used and in looking back if a more holistic approach had been taken the client would have been better served and, and would have had a more positive result. Yeah,
1: and the case that always most immediately comes uh, to mind in this is an individual. I actually, I didn't work with them clinically. I've interviewed them a number of times um, as part of my research study and just in getting to know them over the years. Because again, we're speech pathologists, and that <laughs> tends to be what we do, and we get to know folks. And so. You know, I actually, I never met the individual with the stroke who had dysphagia. So I met his wife after his death. And we started talking a lot about how the dysphagia impacted them as a family. And so um this was an individual who he had a stroke relatively young he was in his 50s so you know young children at, at home working you know very kind of physical outdoor guy lived in a rural community was a timber feller you know always outdoors um ended up having two massive strokes and that just you know completely altered the entire trajectory of their life and you know in my conversations with her the very first thing that has always stood out to me was the healthcare system really pushed her to put him in a care facility you know he's had these these major strokes it's a lot to be a caregiver um he has high needs and i think her words as she described it to me was how could i make him feel like a caged animal here's a man who his whole life has been outdoors active you know, we all know what the nursing home setting is like. She knew what that setting would be like. And so she um, ultimately decided to bring him home after he went through a stint of re- after, you know, acute care a stint of rehabilitation. And he he stayed at home. He lived for another about 20 years with this very chronic um, dysphagia and chronic severe impairments as a result of his stroke. And I think, you know, from Some of our conversations, in terms of what she said was the hardest, she said the dysphagia and the incontinence. They were two things because they're not socially acceptable. And people don't realize that. Again, you know, people don't think about swallowing until you can't swallow. You know, once you're potty trained, once you're at that age, people don't think about toileting until you have an issue. And for me, that's just so striking of a picture that, like, you know, 20 years with this man and dysphagia and incontinence were the two things that always stuck out to her as being the most difficult to manage. And I think, you know, she just really felt like she was never prepared for what came next. You know, she was able to bring him home and she said they gave her worksheet upon worksheet, hand you know, hand out a pen and hand out. Here's all what you should do. Here's all the restrictions. And she said, then suddenly we were home. And like, he was going to go to the fridge and grab something out of the fridge. You know, we could try and hide something in a cabinet, but he probably would go find that too. And so, um, you know, the first thing that her family learned early on was they had to figure out what worked best for their family. You know, all these healthcare professionals saying, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. There wasn't a lot of that communication about does this work for your family? Is this working? Is this not working? If it's not working, how can we navigate? What can we do differently? You know, another example they gave was oral care, right? That's our number one thing. Oral care, prime way to prevent aspiration pneumonia. But this was also a man who never really paid a lot of attention to oral hygiene. To now have him, when he's cognitively impaired, post-severe stroke, to be like, no, 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 we got to get in that mouth and keep it clean. That just set her up for feeling like a failure over and over again. Like he's eating things they told me he's not supposed to. I can't get you know him to brush his teeth. And so that's when she really started adapting. And she had to do that independently on her own and realize, well, No one is sitting here having these conversations with me about like, is this working? Oh, it's not working. Here's an alternative. So she just learned to adapt. They learned, okay, well, he's clearly not going to do thickened liquids. So what can we do in terms of thin liquids? Does it seem safe? You know, thin liquids seem less risky because he's not going to choke on it like solid foods. So how can then we modify solid foods so that he's not choking and we don't have to take him to the hospital? And, you know, I think another thing with the choking was she felt a lot of shame and judgment. So, you know, she did sometimes, as she, said, she said, in the 20 years, I only had to take him to the emergency department three times. Three times he was severely choking. We had to go to the emergency room. And there was always that sense, like, how could you let him do this? That you don't, do you not care enough about him? How could you let him do this? And I think, just all those negative emotions build over time. And instead of feeling the support, feeling like she has her team who she can talk to and problem solve with, it just became okay. I'll try and problem solve on my own. And she did say she had one SLP who was probably the closest thing to trying to like get into how's your family doing? How are you navigating? She quickly figured out, she said, how to just kind of pull the wool over the SLP's eyes and say, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. And so, you know, again, there was someone who tried, but sometimes when you're in and you're out and you're home health, you don't have as long of a time to establish. And maybe, you know, maybe that SLP should have said, I'm glad to hear you're feeling fine. Maybe let's just get someone Let's set you up with someone to talk to just in case, or, you know, could there have been one other question she could have asked or just, you know, normalize those feelings? Because again, if this client's wife was already feeling shame and embarrassment and guilt, she probably doesn't want to expose that to other people because she doesn't realize that those are normal feelings. And so, i <laughs> oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No. And so I was just going to say, you know, I think like as a result, they never she never really got the support. I think she said, that's what was missing. She wanted that support. She's like, looking back, I should have been in therapy. I should have been in therapy from day one, but no one ever suggested that. Like no one ever really, really asked me how I was doing besides again, the one SLP who, who tried and she just, the wife was just not in the position at that point and thought it easier to just say no.
0: Well, and it is challenging when you think of, and as you said, he has passed and he, she's talking about 20 years of this happening, but with more of a person-centered approach, you know, that was his decision. And I don't know exactly his cognitive impairments, but, you know, at some point it is a patient's and a family's decision, you know, what they're going to follow and, and what they're not going to follow. So that's really interesting that she felt and sad that she felt that guilt when she wasn't supported. When she told you that story, did people directly say that? Like, how could you? Or was that her perception?
1: You know, it's probably hard to tease out at this point what her Mm -hmm. perception was versus what they said. But she definitely said, you know, maybe I would have taken him to the emergency room more often if I wasn't worried about them saying that to me. And I think, you know, just like you said, this this shift to person-centered care, that's another role for the SLPs. We need to be educating healthcare providers too. Because I think sometimes, you know, I always see my role is consultative. If I recommend thick and liquids from a safety standpoint, I always put the caveat on it that safety is just one piece of the overall picture. And sometimes we don't see the follow-up. We don't hear the conversations with the healthcare team, the rest, you know, the physician, the family physician who they go see long term. And I think. I think we need to do that education piece, too. We need to talk to the doctors and the nursing staff and tell them what this means.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we are getting close on time, but I did want to touch upon something. In your bio, we mentioned that you have organized a dysphagia support group. Can you tell us about how you organize that and how that works? Yeah. So um
1: first and foremost, I'd say the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders is an amazing resource. Um So folks who haven't been on their website, amazing resource for clinicians, for patients and families. So yeah, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders. And um, they help facilitate or connect folks with other people doing um, support groups around the country, and they advertise them on there. I will say it's been It's challenging to get started. And then we've kind of fizzled because of COVID, understandably, that in the era of COVID, people have been much more hesitant to go out. But we've always had our support group is open to individuals with dysphagia, as well as adult caregivers caring for folks with dysphagia. We have brought in guest speakers talking about psychosocial considerations. We've brought in mental health providers talking about that impact of just living with a chronic disability. We've done days of let's explore different kinds of thickened liquids to see, you know, if you have to be on thickened liquids, which one is your preference, which one tastes better to you. And then also just to provide them with a network of other folks to connect with who are experiencing dysphagia or caring for someone with dysphagia.
0: Well, that's great. And how often did they meet? Based on their preference,
1: they wanted quarterly. Um, I know other groups around the country do it more frequently, and so yeah, I think listening to the potential group members, especially when getting started, saying what do you want to get out of this, um, and letting them drive the frequency is a great way to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. And yeah, I, I love the taste test activity. That's very helpful because um, you don't want to purchase a whole container of thickener and then not use it. So, yep. Yep. and it can be expensive, yeah. and that's you know something we have to consider. Yeah. All right. So we talked a little bit about you've got a lot of future projects, but what's next? Do you have one that's up and coming that you want to talk about or one or two? Yeah. So I
1: think, let's see, probably the most relevant one that we have upcoming is a interview study. So um, I've talked about some surveys that we did, but we have um, one that's in the works where we actually interviewed folks with dysphagia and their caregivers, and we did separate interviews with them. And then we're doing joint interviews between the caregiver and the individual with dysphagia. So kind of like that question before where we talked about, like, do you ask in front of the patient? This has been a really great opportunity to see, are they on the same page? Like, do they recognize what the other person is feeling. Are they perceiving the situation differently? Um, and how is it impacting them as a family unit? So, um, I'm really excited to see how that comes forward. So stay tuned. And then there's always more in the hopper. So yes. Yeah. And
0: how many are in that study?
1: <laughs> right now we have, I want to say 10
0: pairs, which is. COVID impacts things. Yes. Surprise, yes. surprise. Yes, it does. Someday we're going to stop saying that, right? Oh, totally. Someday. Well, thank you, everyone, for the questions. And we have another question. Do you see that in the chat, Dr. I do. Yes. Yeah. So, how do you have strategies,
1: any strategies to facilitate the social component of family meals while maintaining swallow strategies? So, no talking with food in your mouth, tuck your chin. That's a really great question. First and foremost, I say, like, we have to normalize those strategies and we have to explain to the family why those strategies exist i think really you know the no talking with food in your mouth pausing to tuck your chin what that does is it disrupts the flow of conversation and i think all of us we're talkers and we have a tendency if someone pauses to naturally try and fill that in and so i think kind of like explicitly saying you might have to pause for a minute if you ask a question or if there's silence don't immediately jump in Let them do their swallow strategy. Of course, you know, cognition is going to play a role in there, but let them do their swallow strategy and then allow them to talk or, you know, thinking about ways. Can the conversation be timed? You know, maybe it's better for them to do these strategies with liquids. And so maybe you have more intense conversation during other items of food. But I do think some explicit training and conversations with the family members about, yep, this might be a different flow and conversation. But just like an individual, say with aphasia, who's having word finding issues, you know, we don't, we want to encourage their caregivers to not jump in, not fill in those words for them, we're going to want to do the same thing with individuals with dysphagia as well during that conversation.
0: So that might change the conversation, you know, around that dinner table, you know, another suggestion is to have the person with dysphagia ask a question right before they eat. So as you said, the timing can change, but if everyone's on the same page and and just acknowledging it, that it is a challenge to overcome is the first step. Yep. 100%. All right. Well, I want to remind everyone before we go, if you have any last questions, you can put them in the chat and we don't have any in the Q&A and you, Dr. Shun, you shared your email at the beginning in the chat. Do you want to say what that is. Just yeah. And I those. will put my email in again um, for folks who weren't in the room, but feel free to reach
1: out to me um, after the fact. And those who are listening, it's just, it's my first initial and last name, Shun at uoregon.edu. And I'm more than happy to continue to engage in conversation after this evening. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Do you have any last comments that you would like to make? I think I'm just, I'm so glad to see the turnout and those of you who joined today, I really think this applies across every setting we work with, every population we work with. And it's just so in line with seeing people as people first and figuring out what those people need and what their families need and being able to then structure our management approaches that match their needs. So not necessarily just focusing on their impairments but focusing on them as a person and them within their family functioning. And so I look forward to those of you continuing to integrate this into your clinical practice and continuing these conversations. And yeah, and I will just add that that last question, the CARES tool is available online. I have shared the questionnaire within the handouts for today's podcast. And then it's also part of an article that we published in the American Journal of Speech Language Pathology. But if you cannot find it or don't have access, feel free to just reach out and I can share that freely with you.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. It was so wonderful to have you with us tonight. And we really appreciate all your your research and your education, your perspective. You have such wonderful insights and we look forward to seeing what's next with your research and helping us guide this holistic approach as SLPs. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.